Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never, ever charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible. All I ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Now let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM Podcast. My guest today is a guy named Rick Carson, who's an engineer and producer whose work ranges from a day to remember to billboard chart-topping pop and jazz. But I am so stoked to have him here. And if you've heard his previous episode, then you'll know why. If you haven't, stop what you're doing right now and go listen to episode number 238. First of all, it's the longest episode we've ever had on the podcast, but it's also one of my all-time top five because Rick is just one of the smartest, most insightful people I have ever met in my entire life, and I always learn something new when I'm talking to him. There's very few people that I know that every single time I talk to them, they enlighten me in some way, and I cherish that, and Rick is one of those people. This episode is no different. One of the big things that I got as a takeaway from it was the concept of how do you ensure your own future as a producer? I mean, we don't get retirement plans. <laughs> we don't have 401ks. How are you going to make that happen? Well, we talk about that in detail, along with a bunch of other things. So I'll shut up. I present you Rick Carson. You're saying you don't give Pro Tools lessons? No, I don't give Pro Tools lessons. I'd love to get a Pro Tools <laughs> lessons from you. Yeah, no, I, um, you know, I'm down to help people and I try and mentor people as much as I possibly can. But Pro Tools and learning your DAW is one of those things where I feel like you can only really learn that shit by trying and experience it. And I'm going through that shit with live right now. And don't get me wrong, I ask people questions. With like live mixing? No, Ableton Live. Uh, oh. You, yeah. So like, uh, Why are you fucking with Ableton Live? Oh, dude, 90% of my work is transitioned. I see. To well, then live. that's a good reason. Yeah. Um, so like all the dudes in the hip hop and the pop sphere. I forgot you're not a metal guy. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> Ableton is one of those that in metal and rock is like. Only people who don't know anything about metal and rock who do metal and rock with it use it. But out in other genres, it's huge. Oh. And it's way better for the needs of those genres. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, 
you know, I come from Pro Tools, and I want to believe that like Pro Tools can be the end all, be all, and like you can do everything you can do in any of these other DAWs that you, you can do it in Pro Tools. And I can't say that you can't. It's just like after experiencing live, it is way more of a goddamn pain in the dick to do those things in Pro Tools. Yeah, but Ableton is just designed. It's like absolutely It's designed for sample manipulation. So like yeah. where you'd have to pull up five or six different plugins to be able to do something to the audio file in the way that Ableton just lets you do it when you click on the audio file mm-hmm. is fucking crazy to me. You know, you can transpose, you can speed up, you can fucking change the key entirely. Mm-hmm. You can fucking slice it and automatically send it to a fucking, you know, sampler that's laid out like an MPC and it's pre-selects its slices or you can go in and select them yourself and assign them to pads. You know, to be able to do that like functionally easy in fucking Pro Tools, you need to own like machine or battery or something like that. And even then, you're like cutting up samples, exporting them from Pro Tools and then loading them into a So this just works. Yeah. You know, to me, it's kind of the same thing as like when the whole Mac PC debate where my answer has always been, it just works. Well, let me get you guys hip on like where it really happened. Like, you want to know how I knew I needed to learn Ableton yes, Live? I do. If you can picture it, I'm in Los Angeles, and I've got probably, I've got the majority you're of- You're in Los Angeles trying to hang out with me, <laughs> and then it doesn't work, <laughs> That's and you're how, really, really sad. That's how it goes. And you're like, I'm going to try a different dog. Like, <laughs> it's like, uh, like when you get a new hairstyle because you're sad and- Instead, you try. That's what happened, right? Well, no, no. I'm with my buddy Craig Brockman, and no, I'm, no, and um, I'm with the. Uh, I'm talking about Nam, by the way. I, we, I, we tried to meet up at Nam and it didn't work. Absolutely, I will say this. I hung out at that outside bar between the two lanes of traffic for forty-five minutes. Um, <laughs> I appreciate it, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so. We um, were in this session and, you know, Craig brought me in to help him. You know, he just needed an engineer to hang out for the day. I wasn't, like, on the session by any means. I was just coming to see Craig and this dude, Charlie. And fucking, there's a bunch of super talented musicians. These dudes, you know, Craig goes, his band is called the 100 Grand Band. Mm -hmm. You know, like, when they're going and playing for fucking Nelly and shit, like, there's a reason why they're called that, you know? And um, That's cool. Yeah. I'm sitting there and... There's three computers in the room, and two of them are laptops, and one of them is like the the main rig for this little studio. And everybody is nowhere near a computer. They're all playing instruments. One dude's on the bass, one dude's on the guitar, one dude's fucking playing drums, one dude's playing fucking keyboards. And they're fucking jamming and going after it, and there's a click track going. And out of nowhere, Craig calls, hey, get rid of the click. And I fucking go to Pro Tools. Pro Tools isn't even recording. It's not running. Like, I just walked in this room. There's a fucking click track going. And I'm looking at these laptops. And it's like, got to be clearly coming from one of these fucking laptops. And I walk up, and I see Ableton is running in this one session. So they're recording to this Ableton computer. And there's a click track going. I had no fucking idea how to turn off the click track. And they actually had to stop the take and get up and come and fucking turn off the click track and do another take. And I never want to be in a position where that's what it is. If you know anything about Ableton Live, the click track in Live, it's not a track like in Pro Tools that you can mute or anything. It's literally just a yellow dot. 
It doesn't fucking say click. It doesn't look like a fucking metronome. It is a yellow dot. Okay, okay, so hold on. <laughs> Let me make sure I'm interpreting this correctly. You're in the session. You want to know how to do something as simple as turning off the click, and you didn't know how. I didn't know how. And, and it and, was and, like, holy shit. Well, and me being fucking me, like, you know, I like to be confident and feel like I know what the fuck I'm doing. And when you walk into a situation like that, you realize exactly there is so much shit that you don't know. So on the plane ride home, I read the whole fucking manual. You know, and it's one of those things where I haven't been able to like transition into live for my mixing work because I have done some tests and like, it's interesting and I'm not trying to talk shit about their DAW, but live to me sounds a little bit mushy. And if I do like a master in live where it's like two tracks, it's fine. It, mm-hmm. it, it you know, it pretty much fucking nulls with pro tools. But when there's like a bunch of shit going on in there, it, can sound a little mushy almost. So it's not like I'm mixing in live, but as far as working it into our day-to-day workflow in our writing in the studio, absolutely. So we've got a pretty interesting thing that I've never seen at any other studio. And um, how it works at Make Believe right now is we've always tried to have as much shit open as possible. That's how I like to make records. So like if you walk- What do you mean by open? So if you walk into our control room, for example, you know, there's a mini Moog, there's a Rose, okay. there's a bunch of fucking keyboards. Like a bunch of stations that just- Are. Op- are there and operational. And like, yeah, and there's, there's yeah. two different versions of them. So like there's a Rose in the control room and there's a Rose in the live room and they all have their own different effects and pedals. And then there's a guitar Kemper in the fucking control room, but then there's a Princeton or amps in the live room. Mm-hmm. Bass in the control room, bass in the live room. It's one of those things where people can go ahead and say, yeah, we we just got back from the bar. We want to go fucking jam live, you know? And they can go out there. Everything in the goddamn room is going to Pro Tools, and it's all easily recorded. But on the other side, you know, we've got a lot of producers who want to come in, and they're working with their own DAW, with their own songs that they've made. So what we've done is we've taken actually just a small Motu interface and we put that on our credenza and that gets hooked USB into the producer's computer and we have eight buses on our console that feed into that fucking Motu. So how it works is the producer then can walk up to the desk, see anything in either one of the rooms, and then if they want it to show up in their rig, they've just got to press, you know, between bus one through eight, whatever channel they want it to show mm-hmm. up on that little Moto interface. So it's like, okay, now we don't have to transfer this whole song to Pro Tools because we're going to do a hi-hat overdub. You want to record hi-hats, go to overheads, hit seven and eight. They're showing up on seven and eight in your computer and you can record, walk out there, record hi-hats on your live rig. So I've never seen anybody else really rock in the studio that way. And I think that it's really exciting because it gives us the flexibility to, you know, not interrupt or make them yeah, uncomfortable. To the 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 buffer between the idea and the idea being captured is as minimal as possible. Absolutely, and it takes out a lot of the bullshit. Like um, transferring files takes a long time. You know, um, cons- sure does. Consolidating out of one DAW and get into Pro Tools. Like, don't get me wrong. There's still times where that's absolutely the right move to do. So, like, we just did a record where. It, when we were done with the record, it was going to be mixed at the studio. So it was fine to be like, okay, we're going to get this all out of Logic now and get these into Pro Tools sessions because when we're done doing all this additional tracking, mm-hmm. it's just going over to the other room. But if that's not the situation, if a dude's just coming in and he's like, yeah, I'm trying to record some drums and some fucking piano for this hip-hop record, 
do it that way because then we don't have to really deal with anything. We just worry about getting the sounds, make sure that it's routed to you, and then you can engineer yourself if that's what makes do you feel comfortable. Do artists that you work with, clients, like, do they notice this about your studio? In my experience, clients talk shit about their previous experiences always. Mm -hmm. Or if if I were to do something that they really liked, they, they'll always say things like, wow, no one's ever done this before. Do you get comments like that? And by the way, it's my first time ever smoking weed on a podcast. Hey, what's so up, guys? Um, yeah. yeah, you know, it's interesting. So clients do definitely notice. And it's one of those things where, like, I got to give it up to my dude, Dom. You know, Dom and Keith and I really developed this system of working. So it's one of those things where... I feel like he's fucking hyped on it and he goes to Africa or goes to fucking California and he tells people like, yeah, fucking come to, with me to make believe we got this set up. It works fast. Like me and Dom and Keith, we'll work on like 30 songs in a week, mm -hmm. you know, and that's like from scratch. Like we're writing songs quickly and fast because the workflow is quick and fast, you know, yep. on the other side of it. There's definitely shit that like I've done that I thought was particularly fucking awesome that is just like come back to fucking bite me and be ridiculous. Well, you well I mean, that's going to happen when you do 30 songs in a week, right? No, no, no. This is like other shit, you know? You want to know a super funny one? Yes. Recording with no cymbals. So like when I first got to Omaha... I recorded this band and I was like, yeah. Like, like, wait, you mean do the shells first and the cymbals later? Yeah. Didn't work for you? No, it fucking worked out great. The record, oh, came, the came, okay. record came out, it came out fine. But uh, I had this band replace his cymbals with Little Caesar pizza boxes. So he had, like, <laughs> he, had, he had something to hit. And when we did it with Alex. Why not just put mutes up? Well, we didn't have mutes. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> you know, we just use need something. What, to, we use what you got. Yeah, you need something to hit, and that'll not come through in the overhead mics just fine for me. For, and, and for, fair enough. You know, for a day to remember when we did it, we used the drum head boxes. We literally mm -hmm. just cut cymbal shapes out of the fucking kick drum head boxes and put them up there, you know? So it's the same sort of vibe, yeah. you know? And there was a dude who worked at Guitar Center in Omaha named Doug, and he fucking ran my name through the fucking mud over that shit. I'd have clients show up and be like, yeah, man, I was just at Guitar Center. I told somebody that I was recording up here. He's like, you shouldn't record up there. That dude won't let you use cymbals and make you record pizza boxes. <laughs> it's like, sorry, sorry for trying to fucking do something different or better or, you know. Maybe. That's so stupid. <laughs> it, it is what it is. It is. I'll tell you this right now, like, shit like that is weird. I've never recorded a band with no cymbals again in Nebraska because they're not fucking ready for that shit, you know, but we come down here and we're trying to make the biggest goddamn rock record in the world and that's one of the tools that we have. Fuck yeah, that's a you know? tried and true yeah, tool. Good, good enough for Dave Grohl is good enough for me. Dude. That good enough for Lamb of God, good enough for Will Putney, good enough for me, good enough for so many people who'd make heavy music. It's one of the staples of heavy music production, and not because these drummers can't play. As you well know, lots of heavy drummers can play their asses off. It's just it's a stylistic production choice. Well, and when you're when you're playing blast beats like that, the shells can come across so quiet in the fucking <laughs> kit. You know, so it's like your kick drum and snare drum, when you start going super fast, like mm -hmm. they drop almost half in fucking volume and it just gets lost in that goddamn mush of fucking that cymbal That can hell. definitely happen. You know, and it's like, I'm not the end all be all guy of fucking metal production, but 
I don't like that shit. <laughs> it, can, it can definitely happen. You need... Okay, so first of all, I'm not saying that recording a full kit is bad because absolutely, it not. can be fucking great. And sometimes, so those dynamics, like the the dynamic levels of the hit of the drums, I guess within the kit, regardless of what the engineer is doing, a lot of that is up to the drummer too. In uh, how hard they hit when they blast, how hard you know, are they aware of? how hard they're bashing on the cymbals versus the snare. The best drummers you don't really have those problems with because they're aware of all this stuff. And but they're not all, But not everyone's the best drummers. And, 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 you know, I have limited experience making records like that compared to some of the dudes who are probably going to be listening to this podcast. But I'll tell you right now, I can tell when you're good or not. When you're good, of course when you, you go to your blast beat, I can look at it, it'll drop in level, but it'll instantly drop and be consistent. When yep. you're bad, it looks like a fucking ramp where you're the same level at the start <laughs> and then it ramps down to even lower than where the good guy would fucking be because you're tired as shit from trying to do it all out. Yep. So, <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> my, my favorite one is where they try to go into this long-ass double bass part <laughs> and then suddenly the hands just disappear. It's just like, tap. Yeah, tap. it's just <laughs> like... It's like are you playing a snare? I swear, like, I hear a hint of a snare. It's like the fastest double bass imaginable, then just like, tap. Well, and, tap. and drummers, you know, can be weird. Like, I have a drummer that I don't work with too much anymore, but I loved working with him. He was a great drummer named Drew. And, um, you know, he, he had his own problem, which is, like, his groove and his kick and snare and fucking hat were always in the pocket, and I loved working with him. He was a solid fucking drummer. The dude's hit the toms like fairies were running away from him and he was trying to catch him. <laughs> it's just like, he's doing like all this shit, this groove is super heavy and then there's like this tom roll that's supposed to go into this next part. It's like, <laughs> and you're just like, oh, son of a bitch. So like every time, like I'd have to it's go. It's like the essence of a tom it's the, Dude, it's like, yeah, when people talk about LaCroix, <laughs> like the fucking taste of the taste of what you think grape tastes like, you know, it's like, yeah. With like a hint of lime. <laughs> yeah, with a hint of Tom. Dude. Hint of and, Tom Phil. And like, it was like when I finally would like sat down and talked to him, like his cymbals, his crashes were coming out louder in his Tom mics than his Toms were. And I was like, dude, look at this shit. Like, I got to go through and find these by hand and then take, you know, samples that we've made and place them because mm -hmm. these Toms are, you know, you're not hitting this shit loud enough. And then when you start trying to hit his Toms hard, He'd get slower in his fills and come back in off time. So, like, it fucked with him, you know? And he's better now, but, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> so, uh. There's dogs. We've decided not to kill these dogs. Yes. Um, we're letting them live. Yep. So, just so everyone listening knows, we're, uh, we're at the audio compound in Florida. Can we say why you're here? Yeah, I believe so. I'm here mixing a record with Neil and Max, um, and yeah, it's for Max's band, Nidus. Cool. This is Neil from A Day to Remember, in case anyone's wondering. Um, and there's a dog training place right next door. And sometimes, as dogs do, they're quiet. But, you know, today, they, I mean, right now, I, but they'll die down. They'll die down. <laughs> so they're just excited. They, they, were, they heard us talking about the drum fill issue, and they were like, yeah, I, I feel that. 
They're like, I like pizza boxes. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about stuff that's relevant to their interests, so they get excited. Man, so you know what's interesting to me? So that issue right there that you're talking about, like, that's such a great way to put it, essence of toms. <laughs> I've worked with so many drummers across genres yep. that do that sort of thing. That's not, like, just fast metal drummers who who through economy of motion will play a little quieter when they're going fast. That's lots of drummers who don't have the control or don't have the balance right between cymbals and shells. And in my opinion, even if you're not the type of person who likes samples or whatever, that is the, that's right there is like the perfect argument for why you should know, you should at least know how to use them. Yeah. Because shit like that happens. And yeah, I, Sure, great performances, great room, that's always the priority, but that's going to happen sometimes. And sometimes you're not going to be able to uh, get another drummer to come in who can do that. Sometimes you're stuck with what you're stuck with, and, well, and sometimes what, what, what are you going to do? Yeah, sometimes what you have is fucking great, and it's just little things. Like, you're there, you know, um, an interesting concept to audio is live sound. And people always talk about mixing live sound. And in my opinion, you don't fucking mix live sound, guys. You reinforce what is happening in the room yep. to make it translate as well to everybody in the room as Makes possible. Sense. And there's a book called Yamaha's Guide to Live Sound Reinforcement. And I fucking love... I read how, that book. <laughs> I love that book, but I also love how that is stated. Yamaha's Guide to Live Sound Reinforcement. And that's what we're doing in a situation like that. You know, you don't have to go and produce the shit out of something, but you may have to reinforce it a yep. little bit. And being as prepared as possible for that, you know, it's not hard to ask a drummer to be like, hey, give me a couple extra tom hits at the end of the fucking take, you know? But I get sessions every goddamn day that have none of that shit in there. You I want to get your take on something since we're on this topic. Something that's relevant to me right now. I, I want your take. Yes. So we have a session on Nail the Mix right now. Yes. Just this isn't going to come out in February, but yep. just so everyone knows, it's February 24th or 5th right now? Yeah, it's the end of February. Yeah, it's the end of February. I'm here in Florida to do Nail the Mix with Buster Odelhorn, Humanity's Last Breath, and Villarta. I think that's how you pronounce their fucking name. What's interesting about these sessions is that... Uh, the Villarta session is a band that Buster joined, and he also mixes and produces them, but they've been around for a long fucking time. Yep. Well over a decade. They have a way of working to where it is what it is. So they try, they use the old pods. And, oh, yeah. And then they, they just track. They don't capture DIs. Yep. And the parts they write end up being the album. Yep. Like, so when they write, they just commit. And then the thing is, though, after the fact, they'll, like, time warp and, like, change tempos and then and then also, like, pitch shift and do all these things that I guess are technically wrong because it produces artifacts, but it's part of their creative process. They don't like to be tied down to one thing. So they do the recording and then it changes and changes and changes in the in the post-recording process. Yeah. And 
little by little over the course of years, because it takes them years to make records, they end up with something. Now, if you hear their records, they sound fucking disgustingly awesome. You can't hear any of these problems. And Buster said in the video he made about this that these are the challenges he had to overcome. Yep. He had to overcome guitars that were tracked this way, and, you know, so, so there's some clicks and pops here, there's some artifacts here and there. There's just shit in there, but that was part of the fun, was overcoming the challenge and still making it sound incredible, which he did. It sounds incredible. And uh, a lot of people in the comments of the commercial, not in our community, but like out in the, yeah, the, world. In the public, were like, you're spreading bad advice that people should just accept terrible sessions and like... Fuck this guy. What you have to do is tell them to retrack and all this crazy shit. Yo, Just like anger and anger and anger. Yo, if you want to act that way, expect to not have a fucking job. And the only people who are going to continue to fuck with you are the goddamn people that you went to high school with who for some reason think that you're fucking Tom Lord Algae. You know? <laughs> and... It just isn't real. Like, that is not... Like, the sessions that I get from the hip-hop world, these are made by what I would call amateur engineers. People who don't give a scenario. Yeah, who don't yeah. give a fuck about what's happening as far as engineering goes. But you want to know what? They're artists, or they're the producer, and they're fucking accomplishing what needs to be accomplished to get the job done. Like, a perfect example, I'm mixing this song for this girl from South Africa, and, you know, it's going to be huge. And fucking... The chorus, if you could picture it, they're like, bring out this chorus. We need to sound fucking, you know, more distinguishable. And the words in the chorus, it's a two-syllable world. I'm not going to give it away, but we'll just say it's like, hooray, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's not the word, but yeah. So we'll say it's hooray. And I've got four fucking tracks. They all say fucking Vox Idea. Which means that these, I've got, you know, Vox Verse, Vox fucking Bridge, and then all the chorus tracks say Vox Idea, which means that these came from a writing session. Yep. And, you know, there's one track that has nothing below 600 hertz in it and like a weird flander on it, and it says, hooray. The other three tracks are all muffled and distorted and sound like someone's sleeping next to the microphone like it's a teddy bear, and they go, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They don't say the goddamn word at all in it. So there's definitely a vision there. Yeah, but when you put them all fucking together, <laughs> you know, it creates this weird kind of sound that is kind of like that word. So my job is to try and figure out how to get to say more of that word from the one track that has literally no mid-range or low-end information. I got some 1K in there, so... I relied on that bitch, but you know, it was one of those things. Like I, it's not like I could turn that shit up because if I did, it sounded like a mosquito was farting the goddamn chorus on top of this other fucking shit. So it's like, but who am I to call and be like, Hey, will you retract that part? You know, no, we're not going to retract that part. We're going to fucking fire you and hire a young guru. <laughs> and it's one of those things like, you know, you look at fucking, Certain people that you've been doing work for for years, like that may want that from you and be told that that's cool, you know, but on other situations, especially in the hip hop and pop world, like don't go fucking with these people's shit. You know, I see dudes who 
first thing they do when they get a session is they replace the drums and then they fucking rego program the 808 with their own 808 sound mm-hmm. and shit like that. And it's like, in my world, that that's not the move. And like, if I'm mixing like a rock record and it comes over with drums that someone tracked in their basement, like I may start and get my samples up and I may be listening to them yeah. from the beginning. And in these hip hop sessions, don't get me wrong, I have four samples that I rely on in every session. I may not use them at all, but they're in every session. And it's, you know, let's be real guys. One is the knock of a kick drum, one is the low end of a kick drum. Mm-hmm. One is a fucking solid ass mono snare drum. And one is sounds like gated reverb. And I put other reverbs on it to make bigger reverbs from it. You know, kind of like an Andy Wallace sort of vibe. Yeah, totally. That's it. But they're in every goddamn session. And it's like, you know, it may only be that gated reverb one that gets like a fucking big old 10 second haul for like the last hit of a goddamn song, and that may be the only fucking one in there that I use. But you got it ready to go. It is there, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> but but so, so what I'm understanding, let me make sure I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly, is you distinguish between something that has an artistic intent versus something that was just an engineering shortcoming. Yeah, a limitation. And, and you need to know, I feel like as a mixer, who's receiving other people's tracks, you need to have the wisdom, and maybe that's something that only comes through enough experience, but you need to understand the difference between something that's, that's I don't want to say wonky, but not traditionally proper, because it's an artistic decision versus something that is just, they may not have really known what they were doing yeah. as well. And every person that you mix for is fucking different, and they're looking for a different thing. I got a test. And every time that I don't do it, it bites me in the goddamn dick. And I didn't do it recently within the past three and a half months. Like you got a test mix? No, no, I got a test. I'll I'll explain it here in a second. Okay. But I didn't do it recently in the past three and a half months. And it bit me in the goddamn dick again, you know, and it's super solid test. And I think that everybody should fuck with it personally. You know, don't get me wrong. There's certain dudes out there in the world, dudes like Colin Britton. Like when you hire a Colin Britton, you want Colin to Colin Britton the goddamn song. Yes. You know? And let yeah, well, him. Yes, that's the, there's a style of producer. I call them artiste. Well, yeah, and not even producer. And like, you know, absolutely producer because he's a tremendous fucking producer. And we're very different producers, you know? Colin is the sort of dude who can like listen to your song and take your song and fucking turn it into a completely different genre, you know, mm-hmm. for a different time. I'm not that sort of producer. I'm the sort of producer who knows who to make the right phone call to to get someone in the room if that's the job that needs to be done. Like a Rick Rubin style. Yeah. But how I like to describe my job is I'm a coffee strainer for your bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm going to let the best shit through. And sometimes it's fucking, you know, being a producer is more than, you know, just are we going to add an extra layer of drums to this? It's going to be fucking talking somebody off a goddamn ledge when it comes to fucking, mm-hmm. you know, business decisions or life decisions or something like that. But that's not what we're really talking about. We're talking about the motherfucking test, and this is about mixing. Yes, or and what's the test? So, like, when you hire, you know, a dude like that, like, you want that, and you're going after that, and you're paying for it. So, just so for people who might not know, like, let me like if you wanted the Joey Sturgis sound in 2010. It's- you hire Joey Sturgis, you don't hire... 
someone else. Yeah, you don't yeah. hire me. Like used to happen, people hired me to give them the Joey sound. It's like fuckers, go to Joey. Yeah, and like you know what you expect to get back from Joey is within a line, mm-hmm. in my opinion, and that line is parameters. A much, yeah, it's yeah. a much tighter parameter than a dude like Colin because yep. Colin is. A, no offense to Joey, you know. Super fucking flexible, you know. Um, where Joey well, was, that just, is part of Colin's thing. Yeah, that and, is. Yeah, and Joey's thing is, you know, he was the king of what he was doing. His mm-hmm. lane, he drove a Maserati in it, you know. Mm-hmm. And here's the motherfucking test: when you get a new artist or a new producer, and usually, in my opinion, like artists or whatever. Okay, I want to. I'm. I'm about to spit some serious game. This is shit that I've developed over the past like ten years. In this game, guys, you got to think about this like football. And I don't fuck with football. I'm not a football fan. I grew up in Detroit. The closest thing I got to fucking football was watching the Lions lose every fucking Thanksgiving. And I'm about to spit some serious game on multiple things. First of all, I'm going to make this real short. Watching Barry Sanders get his ass handed to him every fucking Thanksgiving taught me everything that I know, needed to know about teamwork. It doesn't matter how tremendously talented you are on your own. If you can't play with a team who supports you and fucking helps you win, then you fucking lose. You lose every Thanksgiving and you retire early because you can't take losing anymore. Teamwork makes the fucking dream work. And the second thing is, shout out to my goddamn team. Justin Valentine, Connor Murphy, fucking Nate, Keith Roger, Andrew Enns. I fucking love all of you. You know, and then as far as the next piece of game is when you work with a producer or an artist, what you need to realize is football. And I didn't get this at all. I didn't fucking like football as I just explained why the fucking Lions sucked. And then I fucking met a guy who says, I don't like football. I like football coaches. I was like, what do you mean, bro? Interesting and he's distinction. Like, he's like, football coaches go from team to team. They collect people. They try and make those people better. And then they figure out how to finally fucking win. And we just saw that in Kansas City where that dude has been, you know, going for like 30 fucking years with a goddamn Super Bowl. Won his fucking first Super Bowl with a fucking pretty much startup team, you know? Mm-hmm. And that is the motherfucking music industry. Artists may come and go. Artists may turn into producers or songwriters themselves, but the producers are the motherfucking football coaches. And next year, they're going to have a new team with a new roster. It's true. Those are the people that you've got to, I mean, you've got to really pay attention to them and learn and listen to what they're fucking saying. And here's what the test is. And I've said it about the test. So when you're mixing a song for a new fucking person, the bridge is the perfect opportunity to flex what I would call your creative fucking muscle. When I mix for someone for the first time, what I like to do is ride the fucking line. I'm going to give them their goddamn rough back, but way better. The best mm-hmm. their rough could sound with their sounds and their shit. But then in that bridge on that first mix, I'll usually fucking do one or two things that would be a creative fucking thing, whether it's a delay, like a short room delay where it's like fucking 17 on one side and 21 on the other side. It makes it sound hollow and weird and gives it a different vibe for the bridge. Or, you know, maybe it's a big fucking reverb on the snares that mm-hmm. fucking open the whole song up and go and sound like a jo- you know Bon Jovi thing. Like, who knows what it is? But I'll do it on that fucking bridge. And you're going to get a fucking phone call and it's going to go like this. Hey, man, I fucking love that shit. It sounds so good. And what you did on the bridge, that was next fucking level, man. And you know that for the rest of the record and the rest of the songs and probably the rest of the fucking career that you mix with this guy, he's going to want a little bit of that Rick Carson flavor in it. There's the other guy who's going to call and say, hey, man, I fucking love that shit, but let's get rid of that weird shit in the bridge. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> and um, you gotta be ready for both. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, but that's the fucking test. And I failed to do it recently on a record that I actually really, really. So you just well, by fail to do it? You mean you just did a mix? Oh, I'll tell you what you I mean. Did. I'll tell you what okay. I mean. So like, I really, really wanted to mix this record, and I got it, and it was like a hip hop neo soul version of like a '60s Motown song, and I made those drums throughout the whole fucking song sound like the '60s, and I mm -hmm. did not get that fucking gig. You know, and it's because I took my creative fucking choice. And, and you did it on the whole thing. Yeah, and I was fucked because, like, you know, I was in this goddamn fucking mindset where I had just been working on creating all these Motown samples for Splice. So, like, I was just so deep. And, like, this song came in. I was like, that is that shit. And I know how to get that motherfucking sound because that's what I'm doing. That's not what they're fucking doing. <laughs> And so, so basically, you. I didn't get that record. You, you imposed <laughs> too much of yourself. It became your mix, not the artist's it, mix. And it was the first pass. And it's one of those things where, like, you know, working with a dude like Neil or working with a dude like Colin, if I did that shit, like, I've been working with these guys for, you know, years, years? now. Yeah. So, like, they'd be like, hey, that shit's whack. Turn that off. This dude is like, find another guy. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, well, that's so, you know. <laughs> A lot of people who come on, when we talk about this, they talk about how, at the end of the day, the mix isn't yours. It's the artist's. And I think that that's a perfect, perfect lesson learned in a way, because I do feel like what happened is that you did your thing. You didn't do the artist's thing, obviously. Absolutely, and, dude. And and it's one of those things, like, I could try and fucking fight it, and even in my goddamn fucking reptile brain right now in this room, I'm like, well, I didn't do my thing. I did what was right for the motherfucking song. And it's like, fuck you. You know, it's <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, that's the only answer. And here's the thing. Well, we all have that reptile brain. Yeah, the thing. you know, and it's like, dude, that guy's hungry, and he wants to do what he wants, and fucking, yeah. you know, he's the reason why I want to start a fucking sync company and just work on my own songs that no one can tell me what they want them to sound like because then I never have to make mix changes and it's all first pass. So it's like, <laughs> you know, but it's like, that's not what I do. I mix records for other people and I want them to be super stoked and happy. And Man, isn't it interesting how when something doesn't work out like that, <laughs> if you let that voice go too far, it will have you... It'll Start have me fantasizing about some weird it'll shit. It'll have me fucking up other people's records, dude. Yeah. It'll have me being like, fuck you, this is it. Yeah. And I'm fucking turning knobs on the SSL. No like, one's going to tell me what the I fuck turn the to do. I air conditioner up, you know, because I'm I'm just hot. I'm heated. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you can see me. I can picture me from the outside, like, standing at my doorway watching me when I'm in that mode. Because, dude, here's the thing is, like, you know, there's that old adage there's always there's more than one way to skin a cat mm -hmm. you know dude skinning cats like it took me forever to fucking realize and like the first person who ever said it was that i read was jason joshua and i know he's getting tons of love right now because he just did with his mix with the masters thing and if you haven't seen it it's a super insightful thing into you know a major fucking dude somebody told me that he did that and at the end he got bummed out because the the price because the version was better the version he did on Mix with the Masters was better than the, the release. Yeah. And like he had like a little breakdown. Not not like breakdown and cry, but like he like paused for ten seconds and was just like emotionally processing that he beat the mix. But however, I gotta say, 
if he had just asked me, I would have told him, you're probably going to beat the mix. Because yeah. on Nail the Mix, at least, that happens 99 out of 100 times. Well, and times. here's the thing, is it should fucking happen. If it doesn't fucking happen, you've been, what have you been doing since you finished that fucking <laughs> right? mix? Every day, it's I It's only not happened once yeah, in our entire history. Every day I wake up, I want to be better, mm-hmm. you know? And... Yeah, I'm assuming that, you know, Jason Joshua was better than he was on fucking Saturday, bro. Of course. <laughs> you know, because, I mean, unless he's mad hungover or some shit, like, you know, that dude's a goddamn fucking, he, in my mind, like, for what he's doing, the lane he's in, he's motherfucking Usain Bolt, bro. You know, he's the only dude winning without the steroids. He's fucking killing it, you know? And it's it's so interesting for me to look back on what I was about to say, like the first time I ever heard this was from him in a sound on sound article about him mixing goddamn fucking Justin Bieber. And mm-hmm. what he was particularly talking about was the Tel Ray delay plugin that used to come with Pro Tools, the one that looked. I remember that thing. Yeah, that looked like a fucking Fender um, mm-hmm. oil can delay. And, you know, he said, when you get to a certain level, you're supposed to be able to beat the rough mix. Everybody can beat the rough mix. What they're paying you for at that level is your fucking taste. Yep. And I use DigiDesign plugins because they made Pro Tools, so they might as well, I'm assuming they're pretty fucking good and they work for me, you know? Mm-hmm. But the, it was that big fucking conversation. Is that what he said? That's what he said okay. in his shit. <laughs> you know, like literally that's why he was talking about the fucking Telray plugin. Mm-hmm. And he's like, either you're getting paid for your taste. And he's like, and I'll use this DigiDesign plugin because it sounds fine. And, Who gives you know, a shit? And yeah. it's his vibe. But here's the thing is like, the big thing that I took away from that shit is like, he's absolutely right. Like, why would you hire Josh Wilbur over goddamn fucking Chris Lord LG? It's because they're different. Yes, because you want what Josh Wilbur brings to the mix. Yeah, you know, and both of them are going to beat your fucking rough mix, you know? And don't get me wrong. Like, in some instances, I've heard some name dudes come back with a mix that isn't it, you know? Sometimes. But it's usually because they fell into my goddamn trap and they didn't do the test. Yeah, you know, I've come to the conclusion that uh, at a certain level, when it comes to rough mixes, people are winning on taste and politics only. They're not winning on skill. No, absolutely. Because any, if you're for a real band, for like a serious artist generally, and I mean in any genre, like it, serious metal artists too, when test mixes happen, everyone who's getting asked... Politics. They deserve a seat at the table, though, yeah. as far as their skill go. No no chumps are getting asked. Everybody's awesome. Yeah. So it's who do you like better and who's got the better political angle, and it's those two things balanced against each other. Yeah, and I'll say this. like A, a lot of people fucking get fucked up about test mixes, you know, and I'm not going to test mix your local record. You know, you can hire me. But... I love winning test mixes on the big level. I don't even know who's on the other side, but like, I love winning that shit, you know? And I got involved in one last year where I didn't even know I was test mixing. And when it came back... How did, how did you not know you were test mixing? There, well, I knew I was test mixing the song, but I didn't know that it was test mixing against seven other dudes. Oh, uh, okay. You know? So, like, they were like, yeah, take a shot at this and fucking we'll see if we want to go with you, blah, blah, blah. And then fucking I got hit up by management. They're like, yeah, you beat out everybody else. I'm like, everybody else? And it's like, you know, I'm not going to go into who I think was on the other side of that shit, but... But they weren't chumps. Yeah, they weren't chumps. And they weren't like Lord Algies. It's not that genre, you know, but they 
fucking their dudes who are on mix with the masters, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, I was just, yeah. Like, that's how you get in the, the politics. Like, people get fucked up because, like, you know, especially in the genre where a lot of you dudes are coming from, like, there's been some fucking trendsetters. And I can't speak more highly of a dude like Joey Sturgis. Because when I got into the goddamn game, you know, Joey Sturgis fucked up everything. He fucked up my whole life, to be honest. Um, when I got into the goddamn game. He kind of fucked up a whole industry. He did. You know, he... Um, when I got into the goddamn game, everybody wanted to be Andy Sneap. We were all hanging out on Andy Steep's forums. This is true. And you don't you don't recognize me from there, but there was a dude on there named BW Recordings, and that was me when I had Bridgewater Recordings back in the day before Make Believe. That's so awesome. And fucking uh, man, you got you know how many people that I've had in my world now that have come from that forum. Oh, it's crazy. Absolutely, like our whole generation. Yeah. I mean, if you're between 28 and 32 making records right now, mm -hmm. and you gave a shit about fucking the Black Album, or that, I'd say if you're between 28 and 50. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But I'm saying, like, for sure. Like, if you're killing mm -hmm. it and you're between 28 and fucking 32 and you gave a shit about how Metallica sounded in any way, shape, or form, you were on that fucking Absolutely. Form, you know? And that's how I got there. And, you know, fucking Joey fucked up everything because everyone wanted to be Andy. Everyone wanted to own a fucking SSL. Everyone wanted to fucking have, you know, fucking outboard gear and some Neve Pre's and fucking Andy used gear and relied on it in the way dudes like Bob Rock did and shit mm -hmm. like that but then fucking uh it came out and fucking you know joey was doing like zombies and fucking asking alexandria and shit and people were like this shit is what i want my shit to sound like what do you use and he's like nothing i, I use a personas <laughs> interface and a fucking sm7 and a countryman di and that's it and like i'm pretty sure that's still his rig to this goddamn day from what i can tell on the internet and that shit fucking... I think it uses an Audio-Technica mic, actually. Now? Like a 4050 or something. <laughs> yeah, and that's cool, you know, but it's... I mean, he wasn't out there buying C800Gs. He had a Great River preamp, which I guess is a Neve clone, and that's it. Like, that is it. See, I had never even heard about the Great River. So he... Yeah, <laughs> just for recording vocals. Yeah. Like, he didn't record vocals right into the Behringers. So, yeah, yeah, the Great River... What do you mean the Personas? Did he have a... He used a Personas. Oh, not Behringer, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, no, no, he RME. Maybe he upgraded to RME. See, and here's point. the thing is like, you know, when I did my research on that, I thought he was using like one of those Personas Fire Studios. But, but it's way back in the day. And, but he probably did. And, and it doesn't matter because none of it fucking matters. Dude, it was still just an interface. Yeah, dude. And like a one channel pre for vocals. Yeah. And then prosumer level monitors. And that's it. Yeah, and fucking... You know, he was turning out records that people wanted to listen to, you know? And, it sounded great. And it fucked people up. And now it's like, you know, they they have that sound. It's a, what I would call a very quickly dated sound, you know? Yes, and he'll even admit it. You know, so it's like, I'm not trying to talk shit on that or anything. You know, his records went way further than no, the records no, I was making at the time. No, no, he's talking, he'll admit it, like, it sounds like 2009. Yeah, but, it, you know, the sound has moved on, but the sound has moved on in a way that has been influenced by the records that he made, you know? Yes. And that is fucking exactly what's happening to Phineas right now. You know, the sound is moving on from mm -hmm. what Billy did last year, but they're being influenced by Billy now in the record that he made. And it's just like, for me being a dude who's got so much money wrapped up into outboard gear and this show, you know, it's fucking, you know, it, 
it's always been one of the things like, I know in my heart of hearts, none of this shit fucking matters. And people will come up to me. I literally have people stand in my room and say the most ridiculous fucking shit to me. I had an intern say, hey, man, I could make records sound the way that you do if I had the same shit that you had. Bullshit. Literally said that shit to me. And I fucking literally looked at it and was like, I'll make a record be- sound better than you on your fucking laptop was, right was, fucking I, now. I was, I was <laughs> But to say you could say the exact same thing, I can make records that sound like me on your rig. Yeah, dude, I, I said yeah. it to him literally. I looked him in his eye. I was like, I will make a record sound better than you on your laptop right fucking now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's like you couldn't even turn this shit on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, that's the fucking thing that it really doesn't fucking matter. But at the other side of it, and I don't know how we got on this topic, but this is a smart thing because like we're always in this debate. Like people are like, what matters? What doesn't matter? And you know, we started this, the joke that we had fucking when we were going to start this podcast was that this was going to be a all and Rick's list of gear that you need to buy to be taken seriously <laughs> by other dudes on the internet that want to do your job. <laughs> you know? Um, and, and that's really what it fucking is, you know, but I'll tell you this right now. I can use an S. I do remember that joke. That was an hour. Ago. <laughs> yeah, I can use an SSL better than a lot of fucking people who are probably listening to this. I can walk into any room and I feel comfortable using the fucking console. I don't care if it's a vintage Neve, vintage API. I don't care if it's a Soundcraft. That's Ghost. your. That's that's your world. Yeah. Well, it's not even my world. I'll walk in, I'll do the whole record with a fucking batch of converters and fucking Pro Tools. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't give a shit. I want to be flexible. But what it puts you in a position is like, you want to know a super interesting one, a dude who's like involved in this shit? Daniel Escobar is a part of this community, right? Yes. Yeah. Daniel is a perfect example because like I watched Daniel, he was making rock records and fucking working on his own shit and stuff like that. And then he transitioned into being a dude who knows how to work an SSL room and works with high end hip hop artists. Good for him. And fucking... Man, I love hearing when people from the community do cool shit. Oh, did you not know that? No. He's read the record plant down in Miami, bro. He's fucking working with, like, Travis Scott, tons of people, bro. The fuck? Yeah, killing it. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. I I just know that, like, he was an ambitious dude. Yeah. Part of the URM community. I knew he moved to Florida. That's all I heard. Yeah, and it's one of those things, like, me and him, we've become a little bit better friends over the past year. But it's always just like, I got levels to even my Facebook friends with like how in depth you interact with these people, but I'm still watching and they're still watching, you know, and it's like seeing that shit, it makes you fucking flexible. There's people that I see in some of these forms. I'm not shouting out URM, for example, but in just forms in general who say like, you don't need a fucking console. They'll, I saw a video while they'll, why there will never be a fucking console in my studio or some shit like that. I saw that, you know, and it's (laughs) like, you want to know why? Because you don't know how to fucking use it. Because <laughs> you can't afford it. You know, like, there's multitudes of reasons. And I'm at the point where, like, I may be giving up my consoles. And it may not be one of those things where I'm giving them up because I don't want to make records on them anymore. It is just, I'm at a time period where what is valuable to me may be changing. And if I want... But there's a big difference between saying, I'm getting rid of a console, I don't want to use one anymore because my particular situation doesn't really need it anymore, versus I will never get one when you haven't even used one, you don't know how it works, like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, you're just making a statement to get 
attention because you're an asshole. Exactly. And Big difference. 100%. And it's not even, for me, it's like, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be giving up analog consoles because they're not useful in my workflow anymore. I could always find a goddamn use for an analog console, guys. <laughs> like, trust me. Hey, you have your reasons, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, because I want to. Do you mind sharing them? Yeah, I want to invest in starting a plugin company. Okay. You know? Good reason. And it's like, that shit takes fucking capital. Mm-hmm. You know, the goddamn fucking NDAs and fucking, you know, paperwork from the attorneys is, you know, way more than fucking record budgets. So it's like, <laughs> you know, to be able to really push forward in a space like that, you know, I've got to play with the assets that I have, you know. I don't own a car. I haven't owned a car in 12 years because I have a goddamn API legacy, mm-hmm. you know. But I got to look at the legacy and say, okay, I'll be fucking straight up. Like, I got a great deal on the legacy. That was an awesome fucking transaction. How it worked out was there was it was owned by a corporation in Texas. It was used to make Barney and the Walker Texas Ranger television show. But because that was funded by PBS and they took government money, they can't actually sell those things because of the tech shit. You know, so what we did was like they wanted to move on to digital and they had to get rid of the goddamn desk and they knew mm-hmm. that it was fucking valuable. So we linked up with a charity and they fucking donated the console to the charity. And then I donated fucking like $35,000 in exchange for the goddamn console from the charity. You know, great deal. Yeah. I got a motherfucking legacy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I could look at it and say, okay, well, I can sell the fucking legacy and I could free up fucking, you know, 75, 80 grand cash or I could fucking sell the legacy, buy another SSL and put it in that room and then probably pay 20 grand for the console and another 10 to 15 for installation and teching and then free up like $50,000 cash, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, or I could sell both the fucking desks because, you know, let's be real. If you guys want to know the honest truth about Omaha, Nebraska, I've had an SSL console in the state of Nebraska for almost 10 years and not a single person has ever booked it to mix a record on. You know, so like if that yeah. if that console was in New York or Los Angeles, there would be freelance engineers who book out that room because they want to come mix a record yep. on an SSL. That doesn't happen in Nebraska. It never fucking happened, and it's actually one of the reasons why I took the SSL out of the main room and put it in the goddamn back room. Well, if it's been ten years, I think that's a good. Well, I did that. Yeah, I did that roughly five years ago. Um, I put it in my personal room because I was hoping that. I, you know, okay, maybe SSL is not the vibe. Maybe they want something like an API, mm-hmm. you know, they don't, you know, and like people will come in, like the studio gets utilized for a lot of outside tracking, you know, people track their drums there and shit like that, but I don't really think they give a shit. And like, for me, you know, I don't really care for the legacy if we're, yeah. if we're being honest. Um, it's got tons of headroom, which I absolutely love. It's very hard to clip that console, which is nice. You know, the SSL much easily clippable. Um, so for like these dudes who aren't what I would consider the most proficient engineers or dudes who just don't have a lot of time on consoles and stuff like that, the console isn't one of those things that ever is really going to get in their way in the workflow that I have. And it gives me the ability to have everything patched in and everything is numbered to the desk. So if it's coming in on 17 on the console, it's coming in on 17 in Pro Tools. Yeah. You know, and you push up the fucking fader and your signal's there, you know, and then you have an EQ. A lot less confusion for someone who may not be as, I guess, what's the word, virtuosic with their uh, signal flow. Yeah, and like our studio has a ton of shit, and also our console doesn't have any preamps in it. So it's not to the point where like you could plug a microphone into the wall and like it shows up on channel one. You've got to have everything routed through outboard preamps, which is tight because you get all those flavors. But, you know, a lot of people like 
don't know anything about that shit or don't know how to use it. So like for me, it's like, I've got things that live in certain places and they're just there. So like my overheads are always in the Sontec preamp. You almost never have to fucking touch the thing. You know, mm-hmm. it just sits off in the corner. Sounds great forever. And all an engineer has to worry about is pushing up those two faders that says motherfucking overheads, you know, and like Keith, you know, who is my chief engineer at make believe like, don't get me wrong. He'll do whatever the fuck he wants and he can change that shit. But like for the majority of people who are coming in there and want to fucking track a drum set, you know, the overheads are out there. They're not going to change what those mics are and fucking they'll just move them to where they want. And it's usually fucking fine. And they, I believe in certain situations, there's producers like Maurice Bailey, who's a super talented dude from Omaha. You know, they trust that we got sounds going on already. There's like EQs and inserts and shit. And it's like, <laughs> you know, we do this shit. And, you want to know a super funny example of that? We had a we had a session come in where these dudes came in from Europe recently, and uh, you know my my buddy Dom, uh, that, and that's Dominic Sanders from fucking Kansas City, by the way. He's an absolutely tremendous producer. You know, if you guys want to learn about hip hop at all and try and find young dudes to watch out for, he is one of the fucking guys. Dominic Sanders. Yep. Check him out. And uh, so he, um, you know, he calls me up and he's like, "Hey, we're looking for this drum sound." I'm like. Okay, you know, so before the session starts up, I get, I've got like nine drum sets at the studio. So I get the right drum set out and I get it tuned and treated right and get the right shit on it. And fucking the drummer is out there and he's playing and he's having a grand old time and we're fucking cutting live. This is piano, violin, upright bass, three saxophones and drums. It's a jazz record. So we're cutting this fucking record and there's this dude who is like with one of the players and he's like, this guy's fucking roadie, you know? <laughs> and he comes up to me and he's like, hey man, the drums were, they're kind of tuned like a rock record. And I was like, oh, well, I'm pretty happy with it, but if he wants to change it, you know, he, he's more than welcome to change it, you know? Yeah. And I don't know who this guy is at all. And he's being real obnoxious and I can't remember what he said, but he was like, I spent three years with Bernard Purdy. Who, if you don't know who Bernard Purdy is, he's a fucking super drummer, you know? And I'm like, okay, you know? And, like, I don't want to say anything to this dude, but, like, one thing that, like, fucking I get off on, and, like, in this world, you guys don't know me. You know, probably dudes like Colin and dudes like, you know, Neil in the rock world are probably some of the bigger dudes who know that, like, you want me to get a drum sound? I'll get you a fucking drum sound. Mm -hmm. Say the fucking record. I'll get the goddamn sound. Yeah, I know that about you. Yeah, but you're like an encyclopedia. In the hip hop world, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that I'm more well known for, mm-hmm. you know? And so, like, to get the phone call and say, get this drum sound, I get that drum sound set up, and then this motherfucker is in here. So, like, who was the dude? Was he, it? He's just, he's the dude willing to work for free for one of the musicians who came up. So, what was he doing there? He was just supposed to be hanging out. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. 
Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. So just this dude hanging out is telling me that I'm getting- who, who asked you for the drum sound? The producer. The producer. Okay. And so you get this drum sound. <laughs> is the producer there by any chance? Oh, absolutely. Okay. And it- so then this guy who's not on the session just happens to be there. It starts throwing in his two cents. Yeah, and, and like everybody's watching this Man, and, and like so first hold, of, hold, hold. wait, that's just not good etiquette. No, right? not at all. But here it gets so good, bro. So like he fucking like starts Fuck the, that guy. These are like right. super treated drums. I've mm-hmm. got half the kick drum full of newspaper. I've got fucking multiple pieces of tape and fucking rolled up fucking gaff tape and fucking uh Gaff tape and paper towel in the shape of old Co-Texas because mm-hmm. they would use, you know, panty liners on drums back in the 60s. So yep. I try and make them in the same shape of them. And uh, I've got these fucking, these drums treated. He's pulling the shit off. He takes my fucking, you know, $3,000 Q snare drum, pulls all the treatment off of it, and then stands on the head and then asks if we have a drum dial to re-fucking tune it. And then he's fucking just, like, changes absolutely what everything. Was he, he, he was trying to, like, seat it? Yeah, like, like like the head needed to be reseated or some shit. So it stands on the fucking head. I'm just like watching all the shit, just like completely fucking pissed off. Wait, wait, and fucking, I'm trying to just like, but I'm letting it go down because it's, you don't have the word chutzpah. Oh you yeah, that word oh chutzpah. dude, yeah. Okay. And here's the thing: <laughs> like, chutzpah. I'm watching it, trying, you know. And this is an older dude. This dude's in his fucking fifties, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm watching this shit go down, and I'm just like, okay, if that's what they fucking want out there, you know. Let him fucking do it. I'll try and fucking help him get a drum sound. So, you know, after we get drums set up, like, I fucking go, and I go in the back room, and I, you know, doing my shit, and fucking, you know, they leave, and, like, half the band fucking leaves and goes get dinner, and then it's, like, the drummer, the producer, me, and a couple other people, and the drummer looks at me, and he goes, yo, who's that fucking guy who went in there and, like, changed the drum sound and shit? Is that, like, did you do that? And I was, like, because he's, like, the drum sound was great beforehand. I was, like... Oh no! <laughs> I was 
like, I thought that was on you guys. I thought you wanted that shit. He's like, the drums were fucking rocking before when they were dead and they were fucking, you know, real pillow. He's like, that's what we're, that's the perfect vibe for this shit. I was like, okay. So, so then I'm, I go back out there and I'm fucking retuning the goddamn drums, retreating them and shit. And this motherfucker shows back up from dinner and he walks out and he's like, were the drums just too ringy or something? And I was like, don't even worry about it. I got it. And then he looks at me and he goes, don't you need a drum dial? <laughs> and I was like, I fucking, dude, it takes me so, you're in my home in a session that we got brought in to do. They're, they're coming here. They're not from this fucking country. They were in another state and they came here for what we're trying to do here. And it's like, that shit is so goddamn awkward and weird for me, you know? And it, it was great that like the producer and the drummer for me, you know, was like, go back and fix the drum sound. But at that point, it's like, I'm doing shit twice, which is fine. I'm going to go fix the drum sound. But then he shows back up and he asks me if I need a drum dial. And at that point, it's just like, damn, dude, like if how read a fucking room. Like if you, yeah, if you fucked with all these drums and you come back, you, someone's changing it again. Like, <laughs> well, why would you say anything? <laughs> so... So what happened? Did that guy get kicked out, or what, what? What happened? They put him in the vocal booth and made him play a floor tom. <laughs> what? Yeah, just like go in there. <laughs> yeah. Like a fake job? I wouldn't say it was entirely a fake job because there was another guy doing it too, and it actually ended up being like a vibe for one of the songs in particular. Okay, but it was definitely like a place to fucking put the guy. Yeah, so he didn't <laughs> fuck with everything else. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yes, um, and and that's smart on their behalf you know that's smart session management you know because it could have turned into something weird and fucking this and like i didn't make it weird i said hey man you know don't even worry about it there's a drum in the fucking vocal booth uh there's a key sitting on it you know go tune that up how you think it should be yeah <laughs> so it's like you know we're not sitting here trying to fucking start fights with people over goddamn drums so you just redirect the energy absolutely you know that's a good way to handle it yeah i feel like so where were what were we talking about? It doesn't matter. Let's just keep what talking. are we talking about now? So what we're talking about now is redirecting people's energy. Is that something that you've always known how to do, or is that something that you've had to learn how to do? Because that's so crucial. Because yeah, you're right. Alcoholic parents will teach you about redirecting people's energy <laughs> real fucking quick. All right, so, so it's in the DNA. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, I've never drank before in my life because like I didn't want to be like the people that yeah were in my life at that time period. So it's like, yeah, I mean, you learned like everybody's got triggers, everybody's got buttons and, you know, fucking, sometimes you get off on pushing those fucking buttons, you know? And like, sometimes like, <laughs> that's the vibe. But you know, you, yeah, and you, like, even if you get off on pushing them, it's because you know what those buttons do. Well, and you gotta, you gotta figure out the vibe. Like sometimes, you know, sometimes every, I'll say this, almost every band that I work with, there's a motherfucking fall guy. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you don't know who the fall guy is in your band, it is fucking you. <laughs> you know, and he's by fall guy. You mean the guy that gets blamed for everything that goes wrong? Well, not even blamed. Like sometimes he's the guy who gets blamed for everything that goes wrong. Sometimes he's the guy that everybody says is a bad fucking vibe. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes he's the the butt of everybody's jokes. You know, the scapegoat. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and like you can. Get a lot of camaraderie with bands by playing into that shit, mm -hmm. you know? 
but you can't take that shit too far because then you alienate the person. Well, who, you don't want him to kill himself. Well, yeah. well, and you're never going to do anything like that. No, I'm just kidding. But like, like you know, suicide where, is not a joke. Where it goes wrong is like when people take that vibe and they start making fun of the people that they don't know they shouldn't be making fun of. <laughs> yeah. And, and I've seen that shit happen too, you know? Um, and it's like, none of that shit is cool. You know, in my opinion, fucking try and respect all these people who are making records, even if they're bad sounding records to you, because, you know, there's some shit that I thought sounded fucking terrible that other people fucking absolutely loved and adored. So, you know, it doesn't matter. Something you said about that guy, which is really interesting to me, was you said that, you said, read a room. And uh, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, about the, I think that the skill is called emotional intelligence, to where you're able to understand how people are feeling based on cues they give you, mm -hmm. like things they say, but how, not just things they say, but how they say it, like the tempo they're speaking at as compared to the tempo they were speaking at before, the pitch they're speaking at, at compared to the pitch they're speaking at before, their body language, Absolutely. like all these different cues. You put that together and the same way that like someone who's very good at math, for instance, like the best mathematicians can solve things in their head fast. You know, they have super high IQs. Well, with a super high emotional intelligence, you can just look at a room and understand everybody's role. And it's really, they say that to be really, really good at business, for instance, to be really good at business and production, people who are typically have a very high, either they're psychopaths and they're fearless, and they, that's why they're successful, that's been documented, or they have very high emotional IQ. Psychopaths don't have any emotional IQ. Yep. They're just fucking fearless <laughs> machines. But this emotional IQ thing is very interesting to me um, because people have told me I have a very high one, and for me, I've always been able to, to like sense where other people are at. So like when I'm talking to people, like I can already start to tell if we're going down a bad path, I need to change this right now. Or that person is the alpha, that person's uncomfortable. Like it all just comes to me quickly. But I wonder for if it's been that way for you or how would someone even develop that? Because honestly, I didn't have to work for it. Like No, and it's one of those things, like I've had to develop that my whole life because of my mom. You know, my mom was the sort of person where like fucking, you know, if a dude she was dating said the wrong thing to her, she could fucking, you know, smash a glass table mm -hmm. or fucking, you know, cuddle with this full body fish pillow for three months. Yeah. You know, so it's like, <laughs> you know, it was fucking in like i'll fucking never forget like you you want to know how you could tell when my mom was going on the bad path as you say mm -hmm. there was a tell you want to know what it was? what was it watch me now as soon as you got so, man so she would warn you too oh dude as soon, That's rare. as soon as you got the first watch me now you were gonna hear that fucking phrase uh thousand times before you went to bed you know i'll fucking take your guitar throw it in the goddamn pool watch me now <laughs> the, the, the thing i gotta say though the thing about that is <laughs> that's a front row seat but but the thing there is you're getting a warning in these you're like no 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 you're not getting a warning 
Bro, that is the first shot fired. Oh, that's the first shot fired. <laughs> okay, so was there a tell before that? Well, yeah, there's there's like always... You, like, you know that the uh, Watch Me Now is coming. Yeah, there's always tells, you know, but it's one of those things, like, Watch Me Now was interesting because, like, you know, there were certain things that she would do when she was, like, pissed fucking drunk, couldn't stand up sort of vibe, and then there were certain things she'd do when she was, like, buzzed, you know, and there mm-hmm. were, like, different levels of aggression or fucking anger, you know, but... A watch me now could come out of fucking nowhere. She could be motherfucking sober and you could get watch me now for the next fucking 12 hours, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was just one of those things where like, <laughs> you know, yeah, I had to fucking, and like, you could be getting watch me now for some shit that some other fucking dude did, you know? And mm-hmm. yeah, it was, as you say, as far as emotional intelligence goes, like, I think it's a big part of this game. And to be honest, like as far as the music goes, being able to be emotionally intelligent is the only way to know if you have a truly great vocal performance. Because, oh, yes. you know, don't get me wrong, like certain genres, like I get it. Motherfucker needs to go out there, sound like Satan from second one to the yeah, end of the guy. Even song. then. He's, you got to believe him. You got to believe him. But that, that's what it is. It's fucking Satan. But, you know, you listen, like, a perfect one is, you know, you want to know an emotionally intelligent vocal decision that, you know, we were actually talking about the other day that, like, uh, you know, when you look at it from one side of the point of view, it's fucking weird. But when you look at it from the other point of view, it's, like, absolutely perfect to me. Hmm. Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. Oh, yeah. Because if you actually listen to that song, that motherfucker is yelling the whole time from word one to the last goddamn word. There isn't, like, and you can fucking hear when Bruce, like, is singing in other goddamn songs. In that song, he is yelling. And when you look at it from, like, the I'm a goddamn fucking patriot, this where where it has ended up, what people think it is. People are out there on their fucking dualies with their goddamn Confederate flag. I was born in the USA. <laughs> but then the actual song is about a dude who goes and gives his life for a war that he doesn't fucking believe in. Mm-hmm. And he's yelling that he was born in the USA in a sarcastic fucking vibe. And when you listen to it in that, that I was born in the USA. It's like it's still absolutely fucking perfect, you know. But when you listen to it from an emotional intelligence point of view, where you don't give a fuck about either of those things, and it's just a song, it's actually just a motherfucker from New Jersey yelling at you for three and a half minutes, (laughs) you know. And it doesn't make Mm -hmm. sense in that context. Whether you believe in America and the you know super American ideology of being American, or whether you believe in the American ideology of the the Vietnam War was a goddamn bullshit sham, you know, the, that emotional context, they're both things to be fucking hooting and hollering about. Mm-hmm. When you fucking are listening to that at like 11 o'clock in the morning on a goddamn fucking, you know, radio station and you're not super patriotic and the goddamn Vietnam War didn't happen in your fucking lifetime, it's fucking just a dude from Jersey yelling at you for three yeah. and a half minutes. And it's, it's, Kind of like in a weird fucking context, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, it, but it's interesting because like 
who's to say that we should change anything about that shit? And that's where it always get like, taste is so interesting. Like, uh, fucking, you know, Bob Clearmountain has talked mm-hmm. about born in the USA a lot, you know, and he always talks about fucking, are there any regrets, you know, and people always bring that or, up. Oh, any regrets. <laughs> you know, and fucking, and he's like, you know, and I don't think he regrets it, but he's like, yeah, I got pigeonholed. Like people would be like, yeah, Ryan Adams, you shouldn't work with Bob Clearmountain. He's going to make you sound like born in the USA. And it's like, you know, who's to say that that big ass snare drum reverb, you know, wouldn't work on a Ryan Adams song, which probably fucking wouldn't. And he doesn't do that sort of shit when he does that shit. But fucking, you know, it's like this sound that made that song and that big ass snare drum and him fucking yelling like that Mm -hmm. is that goddamn song. And if you were to take those away and have him sing, you know, that like super, you know, even the way he sings other songs, you know, and then that's a normal snare drum, (laughs) you know, like it wouldn't be what it is. Yeah. That emotional intelligence. So as the producer, knowing when the emotion in the performance is just right is so key. And look, dude, even with Satan, even with like screamers, like when I've been recording them, like all I'm thinking is, do I believe this? Like, do I believe what this dude is screaming at me? Like, absolutely. not do I think the lyrics are childish or not anything like that. Like, like one great example to me is that band Korn. Their lyrics are maybe sixth grade level-ish, but the way he sings them emotionally, you believe everything, and it is no longer sixth grade level because of how powerful it is. Like you, it's a masterclass in emotion. Yeah, you couldn't have more complex lyrics with those emotions, and so it's the perfect blend. But even with screamers, dude, I need to believe what they're saying, and. I feel like that's where the emotional intelligence comes in is, do you know if this is an emotionally honest performance? You just know it. Because if it's not, it's going to fall flat. And But then that emotional intelligence also translates to how you interact with clients, how you interact one-on-one with the alpha in the band, how you interact one-on-one with the dude who's the quiet genius, how you interact with their manager and make sure the manager's getting what they need, how you interact with the label when you're dealing with what their needs are, because they've got needs too. When you're dealing with the whole band in the room together, when you're dealing with the dude who's not as good as the other people. Or when you're not dealing with them. You want to know who is an expert or a master class in this exactly? Mm-hmm. Fucking Rick Rubin, bro. Oh, yeah. So so Rick Rubin and fucking What Slip- is he not a master? Dude, and Slipknot, bro, you hear that story? I have heard a few stories about so like, him and Slipknot. Yeah, so like everyone from fucking Slipknot was like, fuck working with Rick. Like Corey went super ham about Until it. the next record. Let me just stop you for one second and then I'll let you continue. Yes, I know. They went ham about Rick Rubin. They really talked some shit. But then on the next record, they said that it made them appreciate how much of a genius Rick Rubin was. See, I didn't hear that until 10 years later when Corey was talking about the 10-year anniversary of the record. Yeah. Um, and I saw that then, you know, and he may have said it a year later, but I know he said it a decade later, you mm-hmm. know, and that's where I was going with the story. The thing that I found so super interesting about that whole deal was, you know, he's got the Dixie Chicks upstairs and he throws the goddamn band downstairs in the basement to make their fucking record. And he fucking completely doesn't go down there. And he's, you know, hasn't working with an engineer and fucking 
everyone's like, fuck this, this is the worst way to produce a record ever, blah, 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 blah. And then fucking, you know, 10 years later, Corey comes out and he's like, you know, it just makes me think of the genius that is Rick Rubin. And he, while he wasn't there, he did have notes and shit like that. And there were things that he changed that made the record better and stuff. And I'm just sitting there to and myself. That's their highest selling record. Is there absolutely, yeah, absolutely highest selling record today. And I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, and I'm like, you know, I want to be that motherfucker. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can grow a mean beard. <laughs> I got the name. You know, I don't drive. We got a, we got a lot of things in common. Fucking, I sit there and think to myself, I'm like, if I wanted to make the biggest goddamn fucking heavy record in the world, I would start with a fucking angry ass band. <laughs> yep. You know? And it's like, <laughs> he built that shit in. He built that shit into the situation. Mm -hmm. You know? And then there's other dudes who fucking like Jim Root talked about the, you know, his experience with it. And he's like, you know, Rick wasn't around a lot, but I was going through a divorce at the time and he made sure that his assistant was always there for me and fucking anything that I needed, I could get. And fucking, he, he sent me to like spiritual leaders and all this shit and stuff. And it's like, you know. <laughs> Yeah, not 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 par for the course with producers. No, no, but it's it's one of those things that's so interesting to me that this dude, you know, he is a very polarizing figure from records that have never come out and will never come out from fucking big ass artists and th them bitching about it to fucking Matt Bellamy thanking him at the goddamn fucking Grammys for teaching him how not to produce a record. Holy shit. <laughs> Did you not see that? No, I didn't, but damn. Yeah, fucking, uh, yeah. Um. <laughs> I didn't, first of all, I didn't know that Rick Rubin did a Muse record. Well, he... <laughs> <laughs> didn't do a music okay. record. He was supposed to do a music record, from what I understand. It may not have been the Grammys, but yeah, there was definitely something where Matt Bellamy Jesus. thanked him for teaching because they ended up producing them that self, and that was that fucking madness. Mad, 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 mad. You know, that shit was killer. <laughs> Even if they're getting a little older, and maybe some of that flame that made them so crazy great is died down a little, just because they're probably happier. Mm -hmm. They're still, in, they still can do no wrong. Muse. Oh, dude, incredible band. Yeah. But, it, you know, Muse is an interesting one. I always loved, you know, looking at Muse as far as their choices for record producers. The interesting one is, like, they work with John Leckie. Do you know who that is? I do not know who so that is. So John Leckie is a super interesting guy to me. So John, his fucking first big credit as, like, a fucking engineer and mixer was Piper at the Gates of Dawn by Pink Floyd. All right. But then he went and did Pablo Honey in the Benz for Radiohead in the 90s. Okay. He had, like, a resurgence then. And then Muse hired him because of Pablo Honey in the Benz. I see <laughs> if Pink Floyd and Radiohead... <laughs> Of course Muse hired him. Fuck yeah, dude. But it's like, you know, he lost that job. That job went to Alan Parsons, and Alan Parsons is famous for Pink Floyd. So, like, not a lot of people think of fucking goddamn, you know. I mean, people would probably even think of, like, Bob Ezrin for doing mm -hmm. The Wall before they would think of fucking John Leckie for doing Piper at the Gates of Dawn, you know. Mm -hmm. But not Radiohead. <laughs> That's such an interesting choice. It just makes perfect sense. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's also one of those things where like you listen to those two records and they're one thing and then you fucking listen to the shit that Nigel Goodrich does with that band and it's fucking, it's on another level. And don't get me wrong, I love Pablo Honey and the Benz. And there was a long time where I was like, fuck today, fuck computer music, fuck this shit. 
fuck guitar pedals, you know, like, <laughs> and I just listened to that shit and I loved it, you know, and so great. Yeah. But it's, they're, they're very completely different vibes and you can hear it. And I can't remember which was it absolution or which muse record mm-hmm. he did, you know, but like you can hear it in that shit. It was when they sounded like a fucking like Pablo honey in the Benz, you know? Um, I love those records. Absolutely. I love when muse also went nuts and started adding all the shit they added, but I also loved their, you know, absolution and origins of symmetry and the stuff that's just noisy. Yeah, you want to know another great fucking John Lucky thing? Hmm. You know, uh, this is for the URM kids who fucking want to know about the gears. So, you know, everybody's always like, how do I tell what fucking console this was done on? How do I tell this? How do I tell that? You know, I want to hear something that was done on an API, you know? Mm-hmm. Fucking... There's an old thread from John Leckie on Gear Sluts that I've actually went back and read within the past three months, so I know it's still there. But he talks about Pablo Honey and the Benz, and he tells which consoles he did which songs on. So like, you'll be like, this was all done on a Neve. This was all recorded, mixed, and tracked on an SSL. This was done on the API at fucking uh, REM or whatever. So like, um, he talks about all that shit, and it's super interesting because I'll be real with you guys doesn't fucking matter. All of it sounds like Pablo Honey in the best. <laughs> I know, it's, uh, it, is, it is interesting. Well, the, the thing that I think people who haven't used this gear need to understand is that when you're dealing, when you're at that level, you know, when you're at that, you're talking multi-platinum artist levels, or nowadays maybe they don't go platinum by selling a million records, but the equivalent size artist, when you're dealing with the top of the top, and you're dealing, and it's also the top of the top producers. Yep, they're going for that one percent difference. Yep, because that everyone's already at ninety-eight percent quality, right? So you're playing within a margin of how to optimize that final one to two percent to not just make it sound as good as possible, but to make it sound as right as possible. And sometimes maybe just that one or two percent difference makes all the difference and oh absolutely but that's the thing i think that if people haven't aren't working at that level have never worked with this gear it's not going to make any bit of difference if they use an ssl or a neve or an api console or whatever they're not going to be able to really even hear the difference in most cases absolutely it's totally not the priority like but when you are trying to get that last one percent the difference between a neve and an api and an ssl could be the difference. Well, and here's the thing too, is like, you know, sometimes it'll just make your shit worse. Like one, yes, a lot very of, true. A lot of people think like, I've seen dudes who are like, oh, I want to mix on an SSL, so I'm going to go rent an SSL room. Well, like the first thing that you need to throw away, unless you want to sit there with a multimeter and, you know, fucking test tones, is your balance. You know, mm-hmm. because as soon as you run through that shit, you got to push the goddamn faders up and rebalance that shit. So like a lot of people are like, I want it to sound exactly the way that it sounds like as far as the balance, I just want to fuck with the EQs. Not going to happen. That's not real, fuckers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and you can buy consoles. You know, I have a mod on my console, which, you know, is a resistor in the VCA fader, which will take it straight to unity gain mm-hmm. for zero. And there's mo- there's consoles like the Fix console from Paul Wolf Audio and stuff like that. Or the... <laughs> The fix console from Fix Audio made by Paul Wolf that have, you know, fader to zero buttons in them now. So mm-hmm. you can do that. The API, the box, the little guy has that yeah. shit in it now, you know, but like before, I mean, you buy an old SSL, like that's not fucking real. And like if you have a computer, you can do fader null, but that's still not real, you know. And then the next thing is like depending on the desk, 
like some of these motherfuckers are heavy handed. So like an E series, like an actual E series that hasn't been fully modified or fucking maintained is a cloudy motherfucking console. You need to add a bunch of high end to get over what it does to the signal where it just kind of sounds like a cloud of mid range. The dogs agree with you. Dude, oh, I'm speaking the motherfucking truth over yeah, here. You know? What's going on? And you can see how certain dudes have fallen into that is their workflow. You can't add that much high end in the goddamn box like that all willy nilly because it mm-hmm. goes all fucking ham. But on an E series, sometimes you do that to overcome what the motherfucking desk is doing. Where on a knee, for example, you know, fucking they're a robust sounding console to the point of sounding murky, you know? So you've got to add high end and reaffect your low end because it's going to change your low end because the cumulative effect of things that happen. And where it's interesting is like people are like, oh, Oh, the, but the need makes the drum sound fat. It's like, yeah, need makes the drum sound fat. It makes acoustic guitar sound muddy as fuck half the time. <laughs> you know, so it's like, it's so interesting to me. Like, certain things do certain things well, and other things I rely on other things. Could I get an acoustic guitar sound on a fucking Neve? Yes, absolutely. But I'm probably going to utilize the fucking high pass filter a little bit more gnarlier than I would on my SSL. And they both go out in different ways. See, to me, this is the beauty of a hybrid setup like where you are using multiple different types of preamps. So for instance, in my setup, I had like uh, eight, eight channels of Neve preamps mm-hmm. and 12 channels of API preamps um, and some other stuff too. But that way I could use everything for what it was best at. Yeah. And it didn't have to be stuck into just one thing that was great at some things, not so great at others. Absolutely. You know, and that's one of those things where the biggest problem that I have with telling people like, oh, we have absolute ability to go and try different shit is that they don't learn. You know, Mm -hmm. if you buy a different preamp every fucking time, then you don't learn what the other preamp does. Because what you typically will do is be like, okay, this sounds great here. Like everybody buys one fucking preamp. And depending on your world, it goes to one of three places, in my opinion. You know, it's either going to be used for your kick drum, your snare drum, or your lead vocal, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, in the rock world. And that's what I've seen. Like, they'll be like, oh, I got one Neve, I use it on my snare, and then I use it on my fucking vocal when I'm tracking. And then I track absolutely everything through it. And it's like, okay, that's cool. You know, you get to learn that preamp super well. And I can appreciate that. When you go out and you buy two of this and two of that and two Mm -hmm. of this and two of that, you don't fucking learn any of that shit. You know, what you do is you get into a groove where you say, this works here and this works here, but you haven't swapped that shit. And like, it's super surprising. Like you, I did. You know, well, you, you should. Yeah, you know? I did. The, just uh, what was, no, I agree. I think most people will think APIs are punchy. Neves are warm. So let's do everything we want punchy on API, everything we want warm on the Neves, and uh, we're good. I never approached it that way. I always approached it as in what works best for this situation I'm in, and I did tons of experimenting because I found that, yeah, sometimes API was punchy. Sometimes it's not punchy the right way. Sometimes they sound dull. Yes, exactly. And sometimes it's just not right. The Neves, sometimes the focus rights gave what I needed. Point being that what you're talking about, I have seen other people do, and I strongly encourage them that if they do have a hybrid setup where they have two of this or two of that, or like I did, like, eight of this, 12 of that, eight of this, and like, I had like 36 channels. So 
definitely don't get stuck in one way of doing things. Try multiple things through multiple pathways because that's the only way you're going to really, really learn your gear. Absolutely. And like people get fucked up about what other people say on the goddamn internet, you know, like. Except for what we're saying. What we're saying is right. No, no, no. What we're saying is just an opinion. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I'm just fucking <laughs> No, and I'm being real. So it's like, you know, none of this shit is true. Whatever's true is what you're doing. You can go and buy a fuck ton of Neve preamps. And don't get me wrong, I like Neve preamps. I think that they sound particularly good on certain shit. But they're not needed. They're not the end-all, be-all. But at the end of the day, too, I'm definitely the guy when I'm sitting down and I'm talking to fucking Colin about trying to make a record. I'm the guy who says, we got it, fucking use it. <laughs> you know, like. So what is the end-all, be-all? A great record. I agree. That's it. Yeah, I guess whatever it takes to get there. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Like, that is it. You know, I've seen, as you said, like, there's certain dudes who fucking say, oh, like, you can't fucking tell people to be trying and mix this shit that's been through Pod Farm and fucking <laughs> distorted and downtuned. You need to fucking, you know, tell them to retract the shit and you're ripping us off because you're giving us these whack ass files. And it's like, dude, that, you guys are fucking ridiculous, in my opinion. Those are the files he had to mix. The exact. This shit sounds. Fucking crushing. Yeah. Let's hear your mix. Yeah, exactly. Like, fucking other... Here's the thing is, like, if you don't want to get the job done, other people will, you mm -hmm. know? And I've got to learn that shit, too. And, like, it's just... There's no right or wrong way when it comes to any of this shit. And you got to do what makes you the most comfortable. And I, I'm learning that shit every day. Because, like, I know that... Like, a, it's a perfect example. Um, I was talking to... Mitch G, who's the absolute man, Kelly's husband, and he's like, we're talking about consoles and like, mm -hmm. you know, getting rid of consoles and shit. And he goes, you know, I, I had a buddy who owned a Maserati mm -hmm. and he was part of the Maserati car club of fucking Los Angeles. And he had like lots of new Maserati friends and he was going to Maserati parties and stuff yep. like that. And, uh, you know, then something happened in his life and he had to sell the Maserati and he would never saw any of those Maserati friends again. Yep. And it's like, you know, how many of you dudes are that about the consoles? How many of you dudes are that about the fucking studio? You know, because really, I don't need any of this shit. You know, I agree. I'll, I am mixing records here in Florida in a room that I've never mixed in before on speakers. I've never fucking used with plugins. I don't own, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and... We're fucking hyped, you know? Yeah. And I used to have like weird things like I need the SSL. And then fucking after that, I got, I became the, I just need my NS10. So you, impo you, know? you impose these basically shackles on yourself. Yeah. Like, oh, I'll do this, but I got to bring my NS10s, you know? Mm -hmm. And they got to be my NS10s with my weird little drivers in them, yep. you know? And like, I'll mix a record on fucking headphones. How know. did you get past that? And I know you just said that you're still learning, and I get it because it's hard. It's we're we're so wired to be that way. I think it's in our human nature to to like find something that works and then want it to work. We just want it to work how, all the time. How I get past it is by looking at the great work of other people and being mm -hmm. inspired and feeling bad about myself. You know, um, that's the only way I really seem to get past anything. And like I do it kicking and screaming like a perfect example is like i'm fucking deathly afraid of heights like oh, I, God. I won't even fuck get, heights i won't even get on the top of a motherfucking ladder but you know for alex's fucking 
bachelor party, they wanted to go to Bush Gardens. So mm-hmm. that's what we did this past weekend. We went to Bush Gardens. I'm fucking deathly afraid of heights. And if you could picture it, it's a six-year-old, her seven-year-old sister, their buddy Tribby, and me on Kumba. And there's these two young girls, and they're literally screaming at the top of their lungs, this is so much fun, I'm having a great time. And I'm in the corner seat holding the goddamn thing so tight with my eyes closed <laughs> saying, people don't die on this over and over. <laughs> you know? It's, well, there's always a first. <laughs> yeah, like, you know? Um, so, like, how did I get comfortable mixing on headphones? Like, how did I get the balls to do that? You want to know how? It was when fucking Josh Goodwin came back and told me that, you know, we were at Henson for a while, and, uh, Downstairs, we had a room, and fucking Justin Bieber came in. And Josh was across the hallway, and Justin Bieber came in, and he tracked some vocals. And fucking Josh is like, you going to be around this weekend? I'm like, yeah, I'll be down there. He's like, okay, I'll see you this weekend. And then I didn't see him at all, you know? And then he comes back, and I'm like, where were you? And he's like, oh, we like flew to Morocco or some shit. I can't remember where we flew. <laughs> he's, right. like, he's like, I mixed this song on a goddamn fucking plane, you know? Mm-hmm. Or at the airport on headphones. That was Despacito. Damn, son. You know? So it's like... Who the fuck am I? <laughs> you know, like it doesn't matter. It doesn't yeah. matter. He'll do it. He'll do it on his fucking headphones. Fuck you. <laughs> you know, and he'll do it better than you. He'll do it better than me to this goddamn day. And like, I've got to know that shit and I want to be the best. I want to be better. So like that shit inspires me. You want to talk about the 1%? Mm-hmm. The 1% is not a console. The 1% is not a fucking plugin. The 1% is not a technique to the motherfucking industry, to the fucking, you know, to the people who are decision makers. The 1% are dudes like fucking Servant, dudes like Chris Lord Algae, yep. dudes like fucking Neil. You want to know a perfect example of this is I was reading an article the other day, and it was talking about Jack Douglas getting back together to work with Aerosmith. Have you read this article? I have not. Okay. Interesting, I can't, I can't remember if it was sound on sound. So, like, I don't know if you know anything about Jack Douglas. Do you? I know some about him. Yeah, so like he he produced Toys in the Attic mm-hmm. and like their greatest shit, like was in charge of all of that shit and fucking mixed those records and killed it way back in the day, you know? And fucking, they, he straight up said in this article, you know, yeah, we wanted to have Warren mix the record and I would be there with him, but the labels need to get a big name mixing engineer on it. So Neil Avron mixed it. <laughs> and it's like, they wouldn't let Jack Douglas mix the goddamn fucking, and, and not Rolling Stones, Aerosmith, um, yeah. mix Aerosmith. And he mixed Dream On. Like, mm-hmm. you want to talk about politics? You want to talk about the 1%? That is totally politics. Like, you, you want to talk about whatever this shit is, whatever this game is? Like, you got to realize, and like, I know this shit. I'm in Nebraska. And I'm spending more time in Los Angeles and I'm trying to get my ass out there and I'm fucking trying to do whatever I can to afford to be out there. Cause like where I'm at is like, I'm at the point where people are starting to learn my name in different fucking situations. Mm-hmm. They know that I can mix your record. They know that I can master your record. They know that I can get you a fucking drum tone. You know, like people rely on me for different things in the industry, you know? But at the end of the day, what you got to realize is these people who live in certain situations, you know, their kids go to the same schools. They play golf together, (laughs) you know? Oh, yeah. Like, these relationships go deeper than what happens in a recording studio. Let me tell you something, man. Uh, And it's not the same level as kids going to the same schools and stuff, but one of the reasons that URM has been able to move as quickly and gotten this big 
is because of relationships that I've had for 15 years. Like a lot of these approvals that we've gotten on bands that nobody else would have been able to get approved um, is because we're talking about people that I know from 2005 and earlier who I've been friends with that I used to work with who were at my old record label or who managed bands that my band tour with and that I've kept cool with. And even when things didn't work out, like with a particular label or something, I still stayed cool with all those people. And now the people who worked on the staff uh, when my band was signed have gone on to do other things. They manage some of the biggest bands in the world that we've gotten yeses from. How do you think we got the yes? It's because I've known this guy for 15 years, and when we did work together, even if it didn't end, like it didn't end in my band going platinum, his experience of working with me was a great one. Yep. And my experience with so, him was a great one. And so we, we kept in touch, and that's why it's working, is I have so many relationships that go back. And I guarantee you that if someone had started URM that didn't have those relationships, they would have had a really hard time. Yeah. I mean, I've had a hard time. It's like a lot of work, but without those relationships, who the fuck even knows? So when you're talking about one percenters and stuff, take that times about a thousand. Yeah. Yeah. And, and here's the thing is like, I want to be honest with you about it though. And I want to be honest with the game, the people who are listening to this. There's one thing that will beat those relationships and that is sheer fucking talent. Absolutely. If you are the best, if you are Serban, I've got goosebumps talking about this, but if you are Serban level good, if you are Daniel Lancaster level good, they don't give a fuck where you are. It's true. They don't give a fuck what you're using. They don't give a fuck who you know. They don't care if you come to their Christmas party. They don't give a shit and they will pay you for being the fucking best. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, understanding that that is the only thing that will ever beat those personal relationships, that's one of my driving forces. Yeah, you know? Because I'm agree. in fucking Nebraska. <laughs> you know? So, like... <laughs> Dude, that is, that is some wisdom that I wish people understood. I wish... I really hope to God that people listening really take that to heart because those relationships... Uh, First of all, now, in the case of URM, I do think that there's, uh, there's a reputation, but that, and we're building a legacy, so it's a lot easier to do this. However, in the case of what you're talking about with producers, I know a lot of people who think I don't stand a chance in the world because I don't have these relationships. We already established the gear doesn't matter, but I don't have these relationships, I don't know these people. And like you're saying, what really, really matters at the end of the day, the one thing you can do to circumvent all of that is be fucking incredible. And that, that really, that will bypass everything. It really will. I know these people, like I know people in the industry, some of my best friends, work for the biggest major labels and are like power players at those major labels. Mm -hmm. So I know how they think. And, uh, and yeah, they go with their friends a lot. They go with their friends a lot, not just because they play golf together, but because their friends have 
gotten jobs done for them over and over and over. Like their friends are reliable. Those one percent of mixers that they go to, it's not just the social thing. It's also the reliability thing. They know that when they pay this guy, they know what they're going to get back. You're getting a certain service yes. from those dudes. They they know and, what they're getting. And some of them may not be the most timely dudes. Some of them may take longer than other dudes. Some dudes may have fucking crazy schedules. And if you want to bypass that, you're going to pay for more fucking money. But I'll be real. But you know what you're getting back. You're, you're You know what you're getting back. And I'll be real with you. You know, it doesn't matter what fucking level you're at. You know, you could be best friends and you could be real fucking good. But if you're not that fucking good... There's always that option. And if they get the next deal and the more money, they may not even be in charge of fucking making that goddamn call. Yep. It's one of those things like, you know, relationships are absolutely important. The gear, probably one of the least important parts of the fucking thing. But your skills? Your skills? God damn, dude. The one thing I'll say about the gear, as far as like the need for it, like I want to talk about gear. You know, gear. Because, like, All we, right, let's we, talk about we, gear. We, we were bullshitting about this is fucking the podcast to talk about gear. So, one, gear, if you don't have it and you're trying to get recognized and you think you're fucking good, gear will help you get recognized. As, as in people, if you have, like, a really nice room and great pictures of it, people will be like, oh, he's legit. Yes, exactly. And it doesn't need, it doesn't need to be an SSL or some crazy console. Like if, you know, you got to rig even like Andrews, you know, mm-hmm. where you got a couple pieces of outboard gear and you're making good shit. People will be like, okay, this motherfucker. Do you mean on like the local level? In general. In general. Yeah. People, well, people see that you're serious. Exactly. And then you take yourself seriously enough for them to take you seriously. Yep. But here's the other thing. And like, this is the big thing that I want to stress about that a lot of people I don't think realize is that, you know, these young engineers who don't believe in gear and shit like that, I believe you're doing yourself an incredible disservice by not getting into gear. And the reason why I believe that isn't because it's going to make you better records or you're going to be the goddamn man because you own a rack of 1073s. Why I believe that you're doing yourself a disservice is because there's an aspect to audio equipment that's been throughout the times that everybody has relied on. And Mm -hmm. what you got to realize is it's a financial one. You know, we do not have retirement plans. This is not an industry with a 401k. That's very true. You know, if you are smart with your purchases and you do good work and you increase your collection and you buy well, you can retire and have a little bit of money set aside in the equipment that you own. Let me just say that on a, you know, not on a retirement level, but now I have something set up, which is I'm going to hopefully retire off of. But when I was producing, um, I didn't have a retirement plan. And uh, when I quit producing to start URM, well, we didn't make money in those first nine months, man. So I went from making like 150 grand a year producing Mm -hmm. to literally zero overnight. And I, it's not like the bills went to zero. No, you sold gear. I sold gear. Yep. And my, and I had, Purchased wisely. Where do you think those uh, 12 channels of API and like eight channels of Neve and my four distressors and like all these nice ass microphones and like all this shit? Where do you think that went? Dude. That kept me alive. Yeah. And you know, it's one of those things where it's like these things, 
they're your friends. You know, you get to know them. Mm -hmm. You got to take care of them. They take care of you, you know, and it may be one of those things where like they say something like more than 50% of America right now can't afford a $400 expense, you know. I believe that. I can afford a $400 expense. Same here. You know, because if I really fucking had to, there is someone who would buy a 1073 for $400 right fucking now. Like, yep. no, no questions asked. I could send a fucking group text to 15 people. They all know they got it with my PayPal. Someone's going to hit it first. You know? Yeah, totally. So it's like, would I ever do that? No, because I have other things that are closer to $400 in value that would be less of a goddamn loss but to sell. But if you were at a, in a total, <laughs> if you were in a total end of the world bind. Exactly. You know, and um, it's one of those things where, you know, people don't look at that shit. And when you buy one distressor and fucking one preamp to rock as your only fucking gear for the rest of your goddamn life, I hope you're fucking saving money like a motherfucking madman because you're not investing it into the things that I'm investing into. And like, I look at my portfolio pretty fucking seriously. My portfolio makes money, you know? And how I look at it is, you know, the only thing that I lose fucking money on are things that start with A, Apple and Avid. <laughs> seriously. Thought you were about to say ass. No, no, no. Apple and Avid, bro. You know, Every, everything else besides that, I try and invest to the point where I make at least 200%. You know, mm -hmm. 100% is what I would consider okay money when it comes to buying fucking gear. Yeah. You know, and what I mean by that is like my last gear purchase, and like I keep track of all of these fucking things. My last gear purchase was a Moog Concert Mate MG1 realistic synthesizer. You can sell it for roughly 700 bucks on fucking mm -hmm. Reverb. I bought that thing for $200. Really? You know? So it's like I made more than $200 buying it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So, People don't look at it that way. They say, I don't need that. I got fucking massive. Fuck you. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's just like, I'm going to go make this money. You, you leave this money on fucking Craigslist for me, bro. Fine. And the chances <laughs> of it devaluing are pretty low. Pretty fucking low. Because uh, so there's certain types of gear that no matter how many plugins come out and no matter what happens, certain producers are always going to want to use. Yeah, you know, and I can tell you like, I can spit the fucking game at your, your people here if you want, you know. That's what we're here for. Look at the digital revolution of the film industry. You know, there's only one piece of equipment that still lasts. And they had consoles that were for fucking coloring, that had EQs, analog ones, and digital it, ones. If you're wondering what that noise is, he's rolling a joint. Hell yeah. You know, um, just like fucking we did. You know, they had all these analog consoles and shit. All these big digital consoles. Now all that shit's done in the box. What's the one piece of equipment that still exists in their world from the analog days. Film camera, right? Well, the cameras get used a little bit, but no, there's one that's more prevalent than okay, that. Okay, you tell me. Lenses. Oh, okay, yeah, obviously. Because people will buy fucking, you know, mounts for f-stop lenses from their old Canon cameras and put them on their new fucking Canon cameras yeah. or on their reds or all that shit. You know, don't get me wrong. They're one motherfucking, like, Quentin Tarantino out there shooting on 72. In my opinion, that's like recording on 2-inch today. Mm -hmm. But people are using those fucking lenses to take your band photos. People are using those goddamn yes. lenses to fucking take Etsy photos. You know, mm -hmm. like, those are still a goddamn thing. You want to know what those are? They're motherfucking microphones. Yeah. They're microphones, you know? So when it comes to our shit, you want to know what's going to continue to you know, past the test of time as far as moving forward past this digital age where maybe consoles don't even matter? Microphones, you know? So you want the most solid fucking investment? Neumann microphone. You know, they are not going down. 
I can promise you fucking No matter how many emulations come out. No, no. You know, and it's one of those things like the U-47 is a goddamn ticking time bomb in and of itself. You know, we can go on a whole goddamn podcast just about the U-47, but if you fucking don't know about that, they've got some of them have PVC M7 capsules and Mm -hmm. PVC warps. So some days they're good and some days they're fucking bad. And then the other thing is the VF-14 tube. The VF-14 tube you know, they were, they chose like one out of every hundred tubes that were produced were nice enough to get the M, which meant that they were to mm-hmm. be put in microphones. The rest of them were not nice enough now, or were not nice enough then to be put in microphones. People are spending $3,600 on those not nice enough tubes now, <laughs> you know? So it's like, nah, you get a good U47 and don't fucking use it to yeah. take care of that fucking tube. Like, you have a solid fucking investment. And, you know, that's why in Japan, you know, they don't talk about it here, but in Japan, they'll take like fucking quarter million dollars, half a million dollars for the guitars, they'll put it into a fund, and then they'll fucking bet on the futures of that fund, you know, mm-hmm. and people will invest into it and shit, you know? And it's not owning about, you know, I have a Stratocaster and you have a Stratocaster, we all get Stratocasters, guy. You know, no, there's a fucking vault where these things sit and collect money <laughs> because that's what they do. Every year, they're worth more fucking money. And as long as no one fucks with them, yeah. they send a Luther in there once a year to make sure that they're maintained and not getting fucked with, you know, they're able to accrue value on it. It's a very fascinating conversation because I've always thought about this in a very uh, in a very just practical sort of way, like buy gear that retains its value or goes up so you're never losing money. I learned it the hard way through buying a bunch of stupid bullshit when I first started, but I've never thought about it to this level that you're talking about it at. And I, I think about it to this level that I'm to even another level. You mm-hmm. want to know how far I think about it? Is that if I have to buy new gear, like if I have to, who I use to support my money, I even think about it. Mm-hmm. And people want to say... What do you mean by that? Well, I'm about to get into it. A lot of people want to say, fuck Guitar Center, fuck Sweetwater, fuck these big box fucking dickheads. Yo, that's your motherfucking retirement plan. Mm-hmm. Seriously. You know, if you're good and you can make a little bit of name for yourself, but you can't make a goddamn name for yourself doing this, go to Fort Wayne. They'll take you. They'll let you sell all goddamn day. I know tons of people up there who have gone from this industry making fucking records to working for Sweetwalker or working for GC Pro. Who have great, great livings. Yeah, and like they have health insurance. They, Did you just see that they cleared almost a billion dollars this fuck, past year? Yeah, dude. That made me so happy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Slate posted this, and a lot of people were like ruining the industry. And I'm like, are you an idiot? Aren't you fucking over the moon that There's a- that many people are buying music gear? Come on. Like, did you know that they're, that it's still over a billion-dollar industry? Well, I mean, that's, it's a billion dollars at one fucking company. That's and, beautiful. And Musicians Friend and ZZ Sound still exist. So, like, you know, like, they're making money, too. It's beautiful. You know? And, it makes me so happy. And it's like, you know, that shit is real. I want to support those dudes because they go out and they support dudes that I don't even fucking know. But mm-hmm. those dudes had the exact same struggle we did at one point. And maybe they didn't. Maybe they went straight to Sweetwater and there's some dudes that are getting fucking supported for not having the struggle. But I know that there are dudes like Lynn Fuston who fucking works up there and he put in his time in Nashville. He was fucking tremendous. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to be able to see that that guy has a position like that where he can go and be a resource and fucking be needed. Use and his expertise yeah. and actually get treated like a 
a respectable member of the real world Fuck and yeah. get those real world benefits. Absolutely, dude. And, you know, there's no reason to if things, you know, if things aren't going to work out, not everybody wants them to, by the way. Not everyone wants to be at that 1%, but like especially if that's not necessarily exactly what you want, working for a company like Sweetwater is a great backup plan. Absolutely. If I didn't want to go after being fucking Rick Carson, I would work at Sweetwater mm -hmm. because in my opinion, I've always thought like work at a job that benefits you, you know? So like if you need- And it's your expertise. Well, yeah, but even if you need like a bullshit job, work at the mm -hmm. grocery store so you can try and get a discount on groceries or some shit like mm -hmm. that, you know? Work at your fucking apartment's goddamn leasing agency so you can try and fucking get a discount on your rent. Like if you need to do some bullshit job to make it through this game, do one that benefits what you're trying to accomplish, you mm -hmm. know? And like a lot of people, like they try and do ones that are like uh, beneficial to what they think is like cool in their scene. And it's like, what the what in Nebraska is that fucking, oh, I'm in the music community. I want to fucking be in the music community. So I look real cool because I work at one of these t-shirt printing companies, you know? And there's like three or four t-shirt printing companies in, in Omaha who print. Dude, the dogs agree with us. Yeah, who like, who print a ton of shit and like they're trying to look fucking cool or like, I work at my skate shop, mm -hmm. you know, these jobs that don't fucking benefit you at all, unless you need like a fuck ton of t-shirts or skateboards, you know, I would work at my fucking leasing company at, I would try and be the janitor for my apartment complex, picking up cigarette butts. I spend no fucking gas money walking downstairs. I fucking, <laughs> you know, if, if you work, say you work at Sweetwater and you, and once a month you use that discount to buy a A-list piece of gear. And you just do that once a month for the five years you work there. At the end, oh boy, you're going to have, you could turn around and sell that and put it into the stock market. You could just keep it for the next 15 years, whatever. But like, you could do that oh, and have a, have a serious retirement. Absolutely. In addition to whatever retirement plan they're giving you. Absolutely. And it's one of those things where you got to look at it. If you do that shit smartly, Sweetwater has access to tons of limited edition shit that does well. So like they, you know, they got limited edition APIs that are gold and they got fucking rhodium U87s and shit like that. And it's mm -hmm. like shit that you may actually not need to spend that extra money to have those things. But you're in a position where like if you're trying to invest into this new gear and new gear is interesting because it's harder to make a mint off new gear because you kind of got to wait for it to get mm -hmm. fucking valuable, you know, but you're also never paid a premium for it. Yeah. So if you're fucking getting it from them on the low, low because of your fucking discount. Yeah, gear is real. And as far as like... Makeup, Dude, by the way, this perspective, no one's ever come on and talked about it, but it's so true. Oh, absolutely. I know some ex-rock stars who were like really famous at one point. Like, for instance, the singer from Collective Soul lives in my parents' neighborhood. Kids now may not know who Collective Soul is, but they had 20 number one hits. 20, okay? So um, back when record sales mattered, they had 20 of them. So... Dude's done well. Yep. And um, if you go in his basement, there's like a hundred guitars. Yep. There's like twenty-five drum sets. There's just, it's like a little, like a warehouse. His house. It's, it's a beautiful basement, but like it's just so much gear. And I'm sure the dude has money in the stock market and other properties. But like that right there, that is guaranteed part of his retirement plan. Yo, I'll, I'll be real. The stock market does worse than gear. You know, um, in my personal, professional opinion, you know, gear does tremendously well. Mm -hmm. 
And like a perfect example of this is like, I got a, a producer who's like a brother to me. Um, he's a great dude. Um, and he came to me and he, like, this is one of the things that I do. He's like, what should I buy? What, what's the thing? I said, yo, buy brass capsule C414s. And this is when we could get them. This is in 2017. So when we could get them for under $2,000 a piece, we bought five of them. They're $3,400 a piece now. Tell me what stock market would give you that return. Beautiful. You know? And like, I think about that shit all the time. And like, I could give you the fucking play right now. Mm -hmm. I could tell you what I'm fucking watching for. I could tell you the things that we have in our fucking plan for when the recession hits to pick up mm -hmm. from people, you know? But that's my play. <laughs> I want to hear about it. <laughs> you know? I'll, I'll, <laughs> when we're not recording, I'd love to hear all about that. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll say this right now. It's fucking things that start with the letter N, mm -hmm. you know? But you've also got to realize that even when you get into fucking Neumann and Neves, there's smarter plays than other plays. Absolutely. Because people would say the play's 1073s. Place 1073s, you know? Well, a 1073, you're gonna be paying goddamn near fucking 10 grand for a 1073 nowadays. Mm -hmm. Like, you're paying serious fucking money for it. But a 1066, you know, there's other models that are close enough that are retaining weight and retaining value. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where when 1073s hit a certain value, these things are gonna fucking get to the point where they're gonna be the things that go up next. But what's crazy about it is even though you pay less for it, they still accrue value in the way that 1073s are. So while you don't have 10 grand into it and you're not going to get 10 grand out of it, you still made the same amount of money that you would out of 1073 yeah, going totally. up. Yeah, totally. You know, the only thing that you really have as a beneficiary is that a fucking 1073 has two things. One, there's always someone willing to buy it. Mm -hmm. Like, I know dudes who... And there is value in that. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Like, I know dudes who won't buy 1066s, but they'll buy your fucking 1073s. Mm -hmm. Right goddamn out, you know? And they run rental companies and shit like that, have gnarly collections, you know, but that's because people aren't trying to rent 1066s. Mm -hmm. They're trying to rent 1073s and C800s. So, you know, but there's there's plays. There's plays all along the way, you know, and it's, it's weird. You're making me want to buy gear again. <laughs> Dude, seriously, that gear got me through that year, through oh. that first year of making zero. Dude, well, I mean, by not zero because I remember one month I made thirteen hundred, but like, yeah, by month six I was making thirteen hundred dollars a month from URM. It was it was scary times. Yeah, that gear got me through. No, it it's one of those things too where, and it's also leverage. Mm -hmm. You know, like you can leverage these things as assets in particular ways, and it may not even be one of those things where like fucking oh, you know, I need to take this to the bank and make my statement. Like no one's ever going to leverage their gear that fucking way. But you know, say you need fucking $500, you call your fucking friend, invite him in and fucking ask for the $500 when you're sitting in front of a bunch of shit he knows he can sell. <laughs> it's a fucking different situation. Yeah, totally. You know? And it's like, thankfully I haven't had to do that in fucking decades at this point, but I will be honest. I did that to start make believe, you know? Mm -hmm. And, I've got a Rolex that was left to me when my dad passed away, and I fucking gave him that Rolex for $500 in collateral while I was sitting in front of my old sound workshop console and fucking literally used that to pay the down payment for this, you know, the first deposit for the studio that I wanted to move into. And I was just 500 bucks short, and fucking I didn't want to lose the opportunity and have it go to someone else. Yeah. And fucking I... Gave him the 500 bucks back and got my dad's watch. And I hope you guys are taking some close Four notes. days later, because you don't let that shit go. You don't fucking sleep on those things, you yeah. know? Yeah. Gear awesome. is real. <laughs> Dude, 
thanks for taking the time to do this. Yeah, of course. It's been awesome having you on again. Yeah. We should definitely do it again. I'm sure we could go another few hours. Uh, yeah, I feel like the conversation is not over, but you got to get going. It's not, yeah. I have a, we have a Q&A that starts at a certain time. Okay. So, um, unfortunately, I got to end this. But uh, thank you. Of course. Thank you very much. Yeah. We shook hands. We did shake hands for everyone, uh, for everyone listening. listening. <laughs> Bye. Not watching. See you guys later. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at Levy URM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.